2: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: I'm Ida Vok in Berlin.
3: I'm Emily Tampkin in Bratislava.
1: It's Friday the 18th of June.
3: You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman.
1: Thank you for joining us.
3: I've came very close to saying Washington, D.C. in that intro. Hello, everyone. We are doing a very special episode of the World Review. So if you were a regular listener to this podcast, you will know that we... Normally begin by recounting the moment from the past week that we think will go down in history or that is particularly notable, etc. But this week, because the entire podcast is pegged to the events of the past week, we will not be doing that. And instead, we'll get right into it, starting with explaining why I'm in Slovakia. There's a conference called GlobSec. It is one of Central Europe's security conferences. It happened to fall right after the G7 and the NATO summit it was taking place while Biden and Putin met. So today, we are going to speak a little bit about the reception to all of that here in Visegrad and unpack the, the past week, the NATO summit and the Biden-Putin summit.
1: So Emily, do you want to sort of take us through the topics that you've been discussing at Globetech and the people you've been speaking to and the, the conversations you've been having on what topic?
3: Sure, yeah, of course. So I mean, many of my conversations and events ended up being about China and great power rivalries, European strategic autonomy, right? And and whether whether such a thing can work with the United States and NATO, what 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 strategic autonomy means. And also the state of the transatlantic relationship. I obviously know how many perceive it in Washington DC and in the states, but wanted to get the sort of the other view. To me, Biden saying America's back rings sort of hollow. But I would say that being here, I understood more the value in saying that because it, it does. It's it people want to hear it, right? And I think generally people were happy with at least with the symbolism and the form of uh, the G seven and the NATO summits and the the you know the reaffirmation of America's commitment to to this part of the world. And actually, I asked you know a, a few people. What they thought of the state of the transatlantic relationship and got it on tape um, so we can listen to and unpack that. Starting with, uh, this is Petr Pavel. He is a Czech army officer who from 2015 to 2018 was the chairman of the NATO military committee.
4: I uh, uh, see uh, transatlantic link as uh, one of the guarantors for uh, of the democracy to uh, survive mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, eventually prevail. European uh, democratic countries uh, have to cooperate with United States the same way as United States should cooperate with with Europe. I would also add that uh, to this uh, transatlantic link, we should add all other democratic countries in the world uh, to uh, work together, because uh, our common interest is quite clear to uh, preserve uh, democracy as the system of running our societies, Mm -hmm. our countries.
1: So in that clip, Pavel says that, in, in essence, that there is no alternative to the Czech Republic and Central Europe's alliance with the US to guarantee those countries' sovereignty and, and their democracy. But in advance of the G7 in particular, there were noises from other European countries, such as France, on the need to create a more dis- uh, distinct autonomy for Europe and, and kind of freedom of action away from, from the US. And uh, Macron, who's the president of France, made a kind of plea to, to the US or, or warned that Europe needed to be allowed its, uh, its autonomy with regards to, to China and also to a degree towards Russia and its autonomy with regard to, to the US. So in essence, um, Macron in particular has been pushing for for Europe to take a slightly more independent foreign policy and not necessarily automatically align itself with the US now, of course, that's that's one view that it's possible to take in France. And there are some structural reasons why France can do that. In particular, because of all the G7 countries, France is the only one that is both a nuclear other than the US it is both a nuclear power in its own right and also confident in its ability to diverge from the US unlike the UK. So how how is this kind of talk of strategic autonomy viewed in, in central europe? Is it a kind of essentially french or western european pipe dream and really, you know, in places like the Czech Republic there is no alternative to the alliance with the US or on the contrary maybe is there is there perhaps something there that for instance the Visegrad countries could be convinced to back?
3: Well, I would say two things. The first is that you're, I think you're right to point out that this is very much a central Eastern European view. I mean, not all of the countries ascribe to this view, right? I think, I think Hungary might, (laughs) might put it differently, but yes, the, you know, I think France in particular is is much less willing to say that we need each other on strategic autonomy. So this came up a lot over the past few days. And basically it depends on what you mean by strategic autonomy. If what you mean is that you can break off from the United States or from NATO, which these countries are also members then then obviously people, including people in Europe, are not huge fans of the concept, right? But the idea that that Europe can defend itself, can be strong on its own, w- could could take the lead in Africa and its and in its own neighborhood, that goes down fine. And the question is more: How do you achieve that? And the other, the reality when we talk about strategic autonomy, too. And I don't want to sound like a, a condescending American here, but given the percentage to NATO that the United States pays versus the EU pays, it, it, is it realistic? Right? So the, is, is, is the threat of Europe just walking away a realistic one? And I would argue that no, it's, it's actually not. I would also note that there was discussion on the technological component of all this. And one point that's made in this new report, actually the Globesec just put out on European strategic autonomy, is that the line in Western Europe, as he put it, he, he being a Slovenian academic, is that Western Europe doesn't want to, doesn't actually make the technology, but it wants to regulate it. And that for Central Europe, you know, they they think that that's a bit rich. So I, I think that you're right to note that strategic autonomy is viewed differently in different parts of this continent. But I guess I would also say that within that, how you're defining strategic autonomy and how you are proposing to get there uh, matters too.
1: But I, I wonder how this fits in with the domestic politics in the US. Um, Obviously, talking about the alliance with the US is one thing Joe Biden is in, or the European alliance with the US is one thing when Joe Biden is in office. Um, no one seriously doubts Joe Biden's commitment to NATO, to, to, uh, to European allies and so on. But Joe Biden is only guaranteed to be in office for another what, three and a half years now. Mm-hmm. And the Republican Party seems to have been taken over by Trumpism, as, as you, you know better than anyone certainly better than me, um, part of which is a quite isolationist foreign policy. And some European states say, argue, we don't know who's going to be in office in four years or in eight years or in 16 years. So we need to start taking steps to potentially ensure ourselves against a uh, future US administration, which is less committed to its allies, uh, which might not be committed to NATO, which might take unfriendly or hostile action as they see it towards towards Europe. And uh, Europe needs to be prepared for that eventuality. And that goes as much for France as it does for the Czech Republic.
3: Well, I, I think they're wrong in that even Trump-esque politicians Uh, and even most Republican candidates, I think, would be more committed to NATO than Trump was. But they they could be equally uncommitted to Europe, right? So what I mean by that is that I think it's unlikely that we will have another president who's sort of as openly hostile to NATO, but that doesn't mean that they're going to want to do what Biden does and, and come around Europe and promise, you know, America's undying love and affection. The greater risk is not like an open military confrontation between the U.S. and Europe. It's that the U.S. will check out, and I, I think that Americans, too, including Biden, right, including Americans who are supportive of the transatlantic relationship and say that we're interconnected and et cetera, et cetera, would encourage Europe to, yes, to, to be able to take care to do more in its own neighborhood, to spend more on defense and not just to spend more on defense, but to improve their defense capabilities, um and improve their technology and improve their intelligence gathering and sharing which was a big thing that came up today right improving europe or uh, over the past few days this the state of european intelligence and how it needs to be improved so i think regardless on where you stand of the, feasib- the regardless on where you stand on the feasibility of strategic autonomy that to me like whether or not you accept the macron stance is separate from Do you think that Europe should be, you know, better prepared to defend itself coherently? I think most people agree with the latter or or most people who are interested in the transatlantic relationship, right, would say, yes, that Europe, that Europe should do that. And I will also say that what Americans need to accept, Americans who are are pro-Transatlantic relationship, pro-NATO, et cetera, is that as this happens, Europe will also push back more on American defense strategy and thinking and et cetera. Because as you come into your own, you also come into your own opinions and your your own way of doing things. And that will mean more conflict, right? Or That that will mean more uh, discussion. That will mean more debate. And that's good. Right. Like if if you're an American who's invested in the transatlantic relationship and in NATO, you should want that. You should welcome that debate. Not because it means we're moving apart. It's not. It's because we're becoming more partners, right? More an alliance um, than the, just the U.S. spending all the money and calling all the shots. The other thing I want to say is that I think you're correct to note that this is different when Biden's in Europe and promising, yes, it's all good. The, the, what matters is what happens next. So I asked Daniel Milo, who's a policy professional at Globsec, what he would like to see next. And this is what he said.
4: I think the upcoming uh, and ongoing visit of Joe Biden in Europe is really important, not for EU or Europe as such, but specifically also for this region. Mm -hmm. Many administrations and many countries in the region, which are at the outskirts of both EU and NATO, felt that US withdrew from the region Mm -hmm. and they focused more on the Pacific region and Mm -hmm. on its confrontation with China. And this visit of President Biden is is really symbolic, Mm -hmm. Uh, that he really took the time, he made all those uh, meetings and, and summits, And this is also reflected in a very positive image of Joe Biden across the region. Uh, According to our last survey, he is seen uh, favorably by 53% of uh, Central and Eastern European residents Mm -hmm. across 10 10 different countries. He is even more popular uh, across the board than the U.S. uh, itself which is seen as an important strategic ally in some countries, such as Poland or the Baltic countries, mm-hmm. Lithuania, Estonia, or Romania, but not so much in, in the other countries. I think such a symbolic gestures and symbolic meetings of Joe Biden in Europe, highlighting uh, the importance of NATO, mm-hmm. could actually be a good opportunity to strengthen U.S. footprint and U.S. visibility in this region of Central and Eastern Europe.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: What should be done so that it's not just symbolic? Because I think a frustration you hear often in Central and Central and Eastern Europe is like, we're such good allies to the U.S. We're so committed to the U.S. and the U.S. takes us for granted and doesn't engage with us and, and wants to go to the Indo-Pacific. And this is all just lip service. So what, what do you think would uh, not just heal the transatlantic relationship, but, but deepen it?
4: Yeah, I think what would be really required uh, is to revive somehow the economic uh, integration or economic Mm -hmm. cooperation, which really was basically stopped after the TTP and all the other trade deals basically broke down and never were adopted. Because indeed, China is using its one belt, one road and 16 plus one formats to insert its door into this region. Mm -hmm. And some countries, notably Hungary, but also some others, are you know using this opportunity to basically get uh, infrastructure investment mm-hmm. so if the renewed transatlantic relations are to be taken seriously i believe it should be followed up by some concrete economic mm-hmm. uh, measures and increased economic cooperation between the eu and the us
1: and so in that clip uh, daniel milo says that the us should invest more in 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 the region do you think that's realistic or do you think the foreign policy kind of consensus, including in the Democratic Party has changed. And perhaps Europe is not going to be cannot expect uh, the same level of attention that perhaps it did uh, during the Cold War or earlier.
3: I mean, to me, this is actually a bigger issue than the strategic autonomy conversation, because this is about how do you follow up on these summits? How do you show up? How do you build on the partnership for as long as I've been coming, like, you know, not to be like, I, I am a true Central Europe expert, but I have spent a lot of time in this part of the world, and every time I come here, um, people are dissatisfied with the state of the U.S. relationship. Right? Either it was either Obama wasn't doing enough, or Trump was so transactional, and the kind of sustained attention and also sustained investment—I I don't know that we're that 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 would be well received. I just don't think that we're going to see it. Right? One because geopolitics are different, and two, I think that. Obviously, the Biden administration isn't as hostile to foreign aid as Trump was, but I think he did shift. You know, he or maybe maybe he's reflective of a shift in American public opinion, which is that Americans are are questioning how we're spending our money abroad. It's, it's, it's hard to make the case that we're going through pandemic recovery. We, people lost their jobs, people are hurting, and that we also need to spend money in Central and Eastern Europe. Relatedly, one thing that came up a bunch was China in the Balkans and China in the broader Black Sea region. And can the US counter China through its own version of the Belt and Road Initiative? And Jeremy and I spoke about this on Monday. So apologies if I'm repeating myself. But it's like, how much money are you going to pour into this? Right? China has clearly shown that it, that it's willing to pay a lot up front. Even though it's you know it's bad terms for the countries who are receiving the money, and I, I just don't think that that the U.S. and Europe are, are willing to do to take similar action. So I don't think that we'll see levels of U.S. investment in this region uh, that people like Daniel would like to see. If if you think that we need to respond to Belt and Road, I don't think that we've come up with an answer that isn't mimicry and and worse mimicry.
1: And sort of relatedly, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this must be your first trip abroad since. Coronavirus.
3: You were correct. Yes,
1: right, um, and obviously that also means that uh, the US has moved into a new era with with Trump, and um, we know that Trump was much more unfavorably viewed in Europe than Biden is. I think the you know the average approval ratings for all confidence in the US to do the right thing were about twenty percent under Trump, and they're about between sixty and eighty percent under Biden. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Biden coming to office has kind of undone most of the damage? That was done to the US's reputation under Trump, or is there? Are there some kind of lasting scars that will will not go away anytime soon?
3: No, I, I, there's it's, it's like a broken mirror, right? You can you can glue it back together, but uh, there's still cracks in your reflection. I mean, you you can undo the past four years, and especially because, as you said, there's another there are the midterms in 2022. There's another presidential election in 2024. What people have seen is that foreign policy in the United States and has, be- has become increasingly partisan, increasingly polarized. And that like everything else in American politics, depending on whether or not you have on whether you have a Democrat or a Republican in office can swing violently from one extreme to the other. I mean, you're in, in Germany, right? And you've been in Georgia. Do you think that I'm wrong and that people are have completely they're over it and they're America's back baby? Or do you think that there are lasting trust issues?
1: Oh, uh, lasting trust issues for sure. I mean, my, my basic view is that obviously Biden is from my point of view and from the point of view of most Europeans probably uh much much better for Europe and for the US and for the world than Trump and obviously that's a very good thing but there is really no insurance against someone else coming who might take up some or all or even go further than than Trump I think as a European um like it kind of European in the, in the in the geographical sense, even if not the political sense anymore, I think that uh, we need to get ready for that possibility. I've I've written about this before, but I don't think there is any guarantee that, as you say, the Republicans won't retake the House uh, next year, or perhaps the presidency uh, two years after that, or you know perhaps uh, perhaps a Trump Trumpist uh, candidate comes along in I don't know twenty twenty eight and wins.
3: That's a great, that's a great, great point, you know, because I keep saying, oh, in 2024, let's say we make it through 2024, right? Let's say that it's Biden again, or it's Harris, or I guess those are our two options. Um, and we kind of continue along for until 2028. And then you have a Trumpist candidate right? It's like the state of this alliance cannot just be for eight years is not a long time for, for coherent foreign policy. It's just not. Things take a long, long time to get done. And you you kind of don't have that time right now with the United States.
1: I think Trump was this kind of shock that shocked a lot of Europeans up the complacency of thinking that the U.S. will always be there, always be basically reliable. It can always be relied to do things like stand up for the NATO alliance and Uh, give backing to his European allies against countries like Russia. And that complacency was so severely shaken that I don't think Europe can afford to go back to that point, to the point at which it was before Trump. Now, does that mean they have actually learned this? I'm not sure. Um, as, As we've talked about in places like Central Europe, there doesn't really seem Lots of people don't really see an alternative to the transatlantic alliance. They don't think that strategic autonomy or Europe is a is a credible enough actor to do things like guarantee their sovereignty. But I think the lessons are quite clearly there. Europe has to learn them.
3: Yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. If, you if, if one accepts that we're in an age of great power rivalry and that this is not just like a marketing scheme by U.S. defense companies, there's the issue of, are you rallying democracies together, or are you just trying to have powers countering powers? On the one hand, the latter is almost more honest because of the state of some of the democracies in what would be this democratic alliance. But on the other hand, if we're just competing for power, then why, then why is it so important to counter China, right? Like, if it's not about democracy and it's not about values, if it is about democracy and it is about values, then we're doing a poor job of living up to that. If, it is, if it's not about democracy and it's, and, and it's not about values, then what is it about, right? And what is the point of having the great power competition? Is it just that your, is it like your sports team can win?
1: And, uh, the second biggest event in international politics after the conference you huh. attended this week.
3: Well, no, was... this is related. These are, these are related issues. So it's, if this is bigger, I'll, I'll grant you that. <laughs>
1: uh, okay perhaps the biggest event in international politics was, of course, um, Biden's summit with Putin. Now, uh, you've, you wrote a very interesting cover story for the NS this week about US-Russia relations, which I'd encourage everyone to, to go and read. It's in print and online. And we'll put a link to it in, this, in the description of this episode. Um, but just to start off with, use the term the cold web And I was wondering if you could sort of just explain what that is to you and the argument you make.
3: Oh, the cold web. So basically the argument uh, that I make is, is this in the cold war, you had two competing systems. Uh, There are other differences between the cold war and now this was, you know, the cold war was, uh, was all encompassing, but it was, it was about competing ideologies today. I would argue that we do, we aren't fighting over whose system will win out. The issue is that we have one shared system, be that the internet or financial systems, or, you know, one planet <laughs> for climate change. We, we are in the same multilateral institutions. We have to be together on the Arctic, on and on and on. And we're fighting over who, who gets to set the terms of that same shared system. So that's the idea of the cold web. It's that we're, the issue is not that we are separate, it's that we're entangled. And we're disagreeing over the rules of that entanglement.
1: You were quite pessimistic about the state of U.S.-Russia relations. Your piece was uh, obviously because of timing written before the summit. Mm -hmm. There there were quite positive, for lack of a better word, vibes coming out of the summit. Um, Not a whole lot concrete was agreed, but uh, both Biden and Putin looked pretty upbeat and sort about it being productive and constructive. And I suppose we can talk a bit more about that a bit later. But did the summit change your fairly pessimistic view of U.S. Russia relations, or is that kind of pretty cosmetic and actually, in terms of the substance, U.S. Russia relations remain very, very bad?
3: I think that the summit was the best. It was the best case scenario for that summit. What they agreed on was the reinstatement of ambassadors. And to begin talks on um, on cyber and on arms control. Under the best case scenario, that's what got done. It's not nothing. I think it's good that we're going to have ambassadors back. It's better than not speaking. It's better than not having diplomatic representation. I think it's good that we're going to be talking about arms control. It's better than an arms race. But uh, this is not a huge, like a huge step forward. I think we're basically like I, what I'm saying is that even under the best case scenario you you get reinstatement of ambassadors and that's really it. It's not even that I'm pessimistic, it's just that this is, well, I guess I am pessimistic, but this is the reality. It's I it's I can't imagine writing a piece on the United States and Russia in which the two are cooperating really well on a whole host of issues, right? That is just my that is where my imagination caps out. Now, could I be proven wrong? Maybe, but I don't think I will be. <laughs> like look at this. Look look at where we are with 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 Russia. And you know, they both had their press conferences and Putin to his bashing of the United States in response to every question, Biden said to a reporter that obviously, if he says that everything is going to remain terrible, nothing will improve. And I, I get that, and I respect that. But the reality is that things really didn't improve at the at the summit. They didn't get worse. He, as you wrote in your piece, um, you know, proved that he's not Trump and that this can be a a relationship in which at least something gets done. I, I, but not much did. Do you do you disagree?
1: Well, as as I as I argued, I think that. In terms of the substance of the, of the summit and what was actually agreed, it's pretty sort of small fry. I mean, as you said, they agreed to start talks and reinstate their ambassadors. I mean, that's, you know, pretty, <laughs> pretty thin gruel. But yeah, I, I, I agree with you that it is probably the best that it could be. To me, one of the most interesting things about uh, Biden's remarks after the summit, when he gave a press conference, he linked democracy to raw power. Um, He raised democracy and human rights above ahead of any other issue in his remarks. He talked about um, uh, freedom of speech, democracy, um, Alexei Navalny, who's a jailed opposition leader, all those kinds of issues. And uh, slightly later on, he gave a sort of brief summation of Russian history in the post-Soviet era as he saw it. And he explicitly linked um, Russia's undemocratic system of government to Putin's desire to maintain Russia as a great power and said that in his view, that was not going to be useful to, towards that aim. Now obviously that's for a long time been quite an unfashionable view because we live in what has long been called the age of the, the strong man. you know you had, you had people like Donald Trump and you have people like Erdogan in Turkey or Xi Jinping in, uh, in, in China or you know the archetypal strong man Putin in Russia. Do you think he's right? Do you buy this argument that democracy is, is strength?
3: I mean, I think democracy shows a security in one's own ability to govern, right? I think democracy shows that you have faith in yourself and your people, but that's that's different from what you ask. I no, I don't think democracy is necessarily strength. It can be, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have democracy, right? The fact that democracy can be can be harder, can make you more vulnerable. That that's not a bad thing. But you know, I understand that this is between two great men, and and so they they couch things in terms of strength. What do you think?
1: Well, I think that's a great kind of. Unanswered question of this summit, and in fact, Biden's whole trip to Europe, as is, is perhaps we can speak about, Biden's whole shtick is that he wants to rally democracies across the world uh, against the rise of autocracy. And he talks about this in quite sort of stark, existential uh, terms. He's he talks about democracy as kind of it's in our as as an American, it's in our DNA um this is who we are as an american president i could i cannot stand behind on on democracy america was built on an idea not around a particular race or a particular religion or a particular geographical area but the idea of of democracy and equal rights for all not and he he's clear that that has not always been lived up to but in his view that that's his reading of of american history and of uh, the kind of raison d'etre of, of america
3: and and i guess this is this is what i mean when i say is it for democracy or is it for power right like Can you, because it, it, you personally, I don't think you can rally democracy to counter an authoritarian state. You want to rally democracy. It should be because you're worried about the state of your democracy and the state of your own people. And because you realize that although our country was founded on a democratic idea, it was also founded with slavery. And that that too is a legacy that has been continued to the present day. And indeed um, people are trying to like continue segregation through voting laws. We don't need to fight back against that for China. We need to fight back against that for ourselves. But what, what kind of country do we want to live in? To me, that's that's rallying democracy. It's not saying all the democracies are going to come together to counter China. And if and if in fact that's all this is, right? If it's just like, well, you're nominally a democracy, so let's get together and stop China. Then I think that will be ineffective. I also think that there are some. I, somebody on a panel I moderated said this today that the U.S. should be more flexible in terms of its partners and focus on countering China. And I guess, again, not to keep harping on this, but then it's like, but then what's the point, right? Like why, why are you countering China? Is it because they're authoritarian and because you don't want to live on in a world where China being authoritarian and violating norms is writing the rules? Or is it because you just want, you just want more power?
1: Yeah. And I, I suppose I kind of, I share your skepticism as to whether it's enough to just say in, well, there's, there's a question of what are you doing this for? And then there's a question of sort of, is it enough to just assert that, democracy is stronger than autocracy and uh, that we need to do this. There's a lot of kind of blind faith in the way Biden talks about democracy and the ability of democracy to counter autocracy as kind of just, you can tell he kind of subscribes to the Obama long arc of history sort of view um, that things, you know, there are bumps along the road, but things get better eventually. And that's just more or less an iron law of history you have to ask whether that really is enough and i suppose we'll see we'll see the results long after biden is gone because this is a almost a, a kind of epochal civilizational project that he that he is leading and uh, it's a you know it's a multi-decade question
3: i don't think it's ba- i think it's smart and good to say to recognize the kind of system that russia is right and to say well we're democratic and they're not and and that and that, that can even limit the extent to which you're willing to work with russia but if you want to get anything done, it's like okay, we 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 know that they're that they're a hybrid authoritarian regime, and it's. I'm not saying that he shouldn't raise human rights issues. I think that he should, but there is nevertheless going to need to be some degree of cooperation with Russia and China, despite all of this kind of democratic saber rattling.
1: Indeed, should we just close this section um, by talking about Biden's trip to Europe more generally? How do you think it went? Was it a success?
3: I would call it a modest success. Actually, I have a piece coming up today, which I say, I think I call it a muted success because I think he said the right things. I think, you know, these various summits went insofar as this is pageantry. The pageants were pulled off. Biden showed up for his allies, stood up to, but offered it uh, olive branch to his adversary, which is America's adversary. But in terms of what was actually done, it's pretty limited. I mean, Jeremy Jeremy and I spoke on Monday about the G7 and how limited the the achievements were, how small the commitment to, to provide vaccines to the rest of the world was compared to what needs to be given to the rest of the world to end the pandemic and to finally get us out of this. I think in NATO, you know, on the one hand, Biden got in the communique that NATO will stand up to China or, or will consider Chinese threats to security as part of its remit, which is fine. But then you have Macron turning around and saying NATO has nothing to do with China after signing the communique. So I, I would call it like a six out of 10.
1: I think I'm kind of broadly in, in line with you, but I also wouldn't underestimate some of the successes of this. Um, so, you know, we've had the, for instance, on the G7, we've had this um, global minimum tax rate, which... I think you and Jeremy spoke that. Yeah, recently. although
3: there apparently or reportedly the UK, which hailed the move, is trying to carve out exceptions for financial services in London, which would kind of hollow out the commitment. There were like positive steps forward that were then kind of undermined after the gatherings. And so I think it's more important to watch what happens now.
1: I No, I agree with you. And obviously the UK seeking to undermine uh, the agreement that they just signed is obviously bad but I kind of I don't think I'd underestimate the value of just that paradigm shift and the the principle of a global minimum I mean it's a, you know it's a huge thing and we like I think Biden is quite a good example of this personally like once the bounds of kind of what's acceptable in politics shift then suddenly you can get really really big things uh, achieved and Biden is you know his is pretty uh, ambitious domestic agenda is quite a good example of that and um, so I kind of I, I don't think I'd underestimate how significant the paradigm shift of this principle is. Wherever you are in the world
3: if you're interested in global affairs
1: you can subscribe to the New Statesman on digital in print or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe
3: that's just two dollars a week in America.
0: Your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: And now it's time for a section that we like to call
3: You Ask Us. Our question this week is Which of the summits from the past week was most important? Do you want to go first, Dido?
1: I think the G7 was most important. Obviously, the the minimum tax rate agreement was quite big, even if in kind of the details it's slightly less ambitious. Also, providing a billion doses of coronavirus vaccine, again not enough, but a good a good principle, and hopefully will lead to more.
3: I would say the NATO summit. Um, I think just the range of countries that were involved, the recommitment, however temporary, to Article Five. It's also just it's just such a key part of both American and European foreign policy and making sure that it works. Or I guess another way of putting this is that if this summit had not gone well, and if this if follow up does not uh, produce more tangible positive results, it will that dramatically alters American and European foreign policy. But it's interesting that the one that got the most attention was the Biden Putin summit. Like that was unquestionably the highest profile of, I I think, unquestionably the highest profile summit. And yet we both agree that it was not the most important.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's just kind of how rare it is that a US president meets With the Russian president, um, the optics of it, obviously the contrast with Helsinki, which we haven't really talked about, which was a really important part of what Biden was doing in Geneva meeting with Putin, this kind of uh, stark contrast with how Trump behaved in Helsinki.
3: I mean, this was a normal diplomatic meeting. For, For whatever one can say about Biden, this is how a meeting with a leader of a country with whom you have an adversarial relationship is supposed to go. It's not supposed to be hours long meetings with no, you know, no one there to, to take record. It's not supposed to be teaming up with each other against the press. It's not supposed to be throwing a football that you just received from the Russian president that has a transmitter in it at your wife. Like none of that is none of that is how diplomacy is meant to happen. This is how diplomacy is meant to happen.
1: And on that note, should we move to our final segment? Um, Emily, what will you be looking forward to in the week ahead?
3: I'm going to take it back to the US. I think this, I know I keep harping on it, but I think that the fight for, to see whether the Senate can pass anything, anything at all to protect voting. Rights is one I will continue to watch. And you?
1: There are elections in Ethiopia on Monday. Ethiopia has been mired in civil war for several months in Tigray, which is a kind of autonomous region in the north. And there will be elections held in most regions apart from Tigray. International observers have been quite skeptical about how democratic these elections will be. It will be quite a key test of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's commitment to to kind of reformism and democracy which has been severely tested by the war in Tigray. so um how these elections go will help to define ahmed's legacy and perhaps uh recoup a bit of international legitimacy for him and that's quite difficult to see at this point
3: with that all that is left is for me to thank ito for filling in for jeremy this week thank you ito for stopping by the pod
1: Thank you very much.
3: If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please tell your friends and haters about it. Um, you can like, you can subscribe, you could leave a nice review. And as a reminder, you can subscribe to the newsletter version of this, which is also called the World Review, for free at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review.
1: You can follow all our international coverage at our international homepage, com slash international. Our producer has been Chris Stone. Thank you for listening and
4: until next week.